Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Inyash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 33, Coordination Problems, Part 1 The terrifying part was how fast the whole thing had spiraled out of control. Albus, Minerva said, not even trying to keep the worry out of her voice as the two of them entered the Great Hall. Something has to be done. The atmosphere at Hogwarts before Yuletide was usually bright and cheerful. The Great Hall had already been decorated in green and red, after a Slytherin and a Gryffindor whose Yule wedding had become a symbol of friendship transcending houses and allegiances, a tradition almost as ancient as Hogwarts itself, and which had even spread to Muggle countries. Now, the students eating dinner were glancing nervously over their shoulders, or sending vicious glares at other tables, or at some tables arguing heatedly. You could have described the atmosphere as tense, perhaps, but the phrase coming to Minerva's mind was fifth degree of caution. Take a school into four houses divided. Now, into each year, add three armies at war. And the partisanship of dragon and sunshine and chaos had spread beyond the first years. They had become the armies for those who had no armies. Students were wearing armbands with insignia of fire or smile or upraised hand and hexing each other in the corridors. All three first-year generals had told them to stop. Even Draco Malfoy had heard her out and then nodded grimly. But their supposed followers hadn't listened. Dumbledore gazed out at the tables with a distant look. In every city, the old wizard quoted softly, the population has been divided for a long time past into the blue and the green factions and they fight against their opponents knowing not for what end they imperil themselves. So there grows up in them against their fellow men a hostility which has no cause, and at no time does it cease or disappear, for it gives place neither to the ties of marriage, nor of relationship, nor of friendship. And the cause is the same even though those who differ with respect to these colors be brothers or any other kin. I, for my part, am unable to call this anything except a disease of the soul. I'm sorry, I don't... Procopius, they took their chariot racing very seriously in the Roman Empire. Yes, Minerva, I agree that something must be done. Soon, Minerva said, her voice lowering even further. Albus, I think it must be done before Saturday. On Sunday, most students would leave Hogwarts to stay the holiday with their families. Saturday, then, was the final battle of the three first-year armies that would determine the awarding of Professor Quirrell's thrice-cursed Christmas wish. Dumbledore glanced over at her, studying her gravely. You fear that the explosion will come then, and someone will be hurt? Minerva nodded. And that Professor Quirrell will be blamed? Minerva nodded again, her face tight. She had long since become wise in the ways that defense professors were fired. Albus... We cannot lose Professor Quirrell now. We cannot. If he but stays through January, our fifth years will pass their owls. If he stays through March, our seventh years will pass their newts. He's remedying years of neglect and months. A whole generation will grow up to be able to defend themselves in spite of the Dark Lord's curse. You must stop the battle, Albus. Ban the armies now. I am not sure the defense professor would take that kindly, said Dumbledore, glancing over toward the head table where Quirrell was drooling into his soup. He did seem most attached to his armies, though when I agreed, I thought there would be four in each year. A clever man, probably with the best intentions, but perhaps not clever enough, I fear. 
and banning the armies might also trigger the explosion. But then, Albus, what will you do? The old wizard favored her with a benign smile. Why, I shall plot, of course. It is the new fashion in Hogwarts. And they had come too close to the head table for Minerva to say anything more. The terrifying part was how fast the whole thing had spiraled out of control. The first battle in December had been... messy, or so Draco had heard. The second battle had been deranged. And the next one would be worse, unless the three of them together succeeded in their last desperate attempt to stop it. Professor Quirrell, this is insanity, Draco said flatly. This isn't Slytherin anymore, it's just... Draco was at a loss for words. He waved his hands helplessly. You can't possibly do any real plots with all this stuff going on. Last battle, one of my soldiers faked his own suicide. We have Hufflepuffs trying to plot, and they think they can, but they can't. Things just happen at random now. It doesn't have anything to do with who's cleverest, or which army fights best. It's... He couldn't even describe it. I agree with Mr. Malfoy said Granger, in tones of someone who hadn't ever expected to hear herself saying those words. Allowing traitors isn't working, Professor Coral. Draco had tried forbidding anyone in his army to plot except him, and that had just driven the plots underground. No one wanted to be left out when the soldiers in other armies got to plot. After miserably losing their last battle, he'd finally given in and revoked his decree. But by then, his soldiers had already started setting their own personal plans in motion without any sort of central coordination. After being told all the plans, or what his soldiers claimed were their plans, Draco had tried to sketch a plot to win the final battle. It had required considerably more than three different things to go right, and Draco had used Incendio on the paper and Averto to vanish the ashes, because if Father had seen it, he would have been disowned. Professor Krull's eyelids were half-closed, his chin resting on his hands as he leaned forward onto his desk. "'And you, Mr. Potter?' said the defense professor. Are you likewise in agreement? All we'd need to do is shoot Franz Ferdinand and we could start World War I, said Harry. It's gone completely to chaos. I'm all for it. Harry, said Draco in utter shock. He didn't even realize until a second later that he'd said it at exactly the same time and in exactly the same tone of indignation as Granger. Granger shot him a startled glance and Draco carefully kept his face neutral. Oops. That's right, said Harry. I'm betraying you. Both of you! Again! Ha <laughs> ha! Professor Kroll was smiling thinly, though his eyes were still half-closed. And why is that, Mr. Potter? Because I think I can cope with the chaos better than Miss Granger or Mr. Malfoy, said the traitor. Our war is a zero-sum game, and it doesn't matter whether it's easy or hard in an absolute sense, only who does better or worse. Harry Potter was learning far too fast. Professor Quirrell's eyes moved beneath their lids to regard Draco, and then Granger. In truth, Mr. Malfoy, Miss Granger, I simply could not live with myself if I shut down the grand debacle before its climax. One of your soldiers has even become a quadruple agent. Quadruple? But there's only three sides in the war. Yes, you'd think that, wouldn't you? I am not sure that there has ever in history been a quadruple agent, or any army with such a high fraction of real and pretended traitors. We are exploring new realms, Miss Granger, and we cannot turn back now. 
Draco left the defense professor's office with his teeth gritting hard against each other and Granger looking even more annoyed beside him. I can't believe you did that, Harry. Sorry, Harry said, not sounding sorry at all. His lips curved up in a merry smile of evil. Remember, Hermione, it is just a game, and why should generals like us be the only ones who get to plot? And besides, what are the two of you going to do about it? Team up against me? Draco traded glances with Granger, knowing that his own face was as tight as hers. Harry had been relying, more and more openly and gloatingly, on Draco's refusal to make common cause with a mudblood girl. And Draco was beginning to get sick of having that used against him. If this kept up much longer, he was going to ally with Granger, just to crush Harry Potter, and see how much the son of a mudblood liked that. The terrifying part was how fast the whole thing had spiraled out of control. Hermione stared at the parchment Zabini had given her, feeling utterly and completely helpless. There were names, and lines connecting the names to other names, and some of the lines were in different colors, and... Tell me, said General Granger. Is there anyone in my army who isn't a spy? The two of them weren't in the office, but in another deserted classroom, and they were alone. Because, Colonel Zabini had said, it was now nearly certain that at least one of the captains was a traitor. Probably Captain Goldstein, but Zabini didn't know for sure. Her question had put an ironic smile on the young Slytherin's face. Blaise Zabini always seemed a little disdainful of her, but he didn't seem to actively dislike her. Nothing like the derision he held for Draco Malfoy, or the resentment he had developed for Harry Potter. She had worried at first about Zabini betraying her, but the boy seemed desperate to show that the other two generals were no better than him. And while Hermione thought that Zabini would probably be happy to sell her out to anyone else, he'd never let Malfoy or Harry win. Most of your soldiers are still loyal to you, I'm pretty sure said Zabini. It's just that no one wants to be left out of the fun. The scornful look on the Slytherin's face made it clear what he thought of people who didn't take plotting seriously. So they think they can be double agents and secretly work for our side while pretending to betray us. And that would also go for anyone in the other armies who says that they want to be our spy, Hermione said carefully. The young Slytherin shrugged. I think I did a good job of telling which ones really want to sell out Malfoy. I'm not sure anyone really wants to sell out Potter to you, but not is a sure bet for betraying Potter to Malfoy, and since I had Entwistle approach him supposedly on behalf of Malfoy, and Entwistle really reports to us, that's almost as good. Hermione closed her eyes for a moment. We're going to lose, aren't we? Look, Zabini said patiently, you are in the lead now in quarter points. We just have to not lose this last battle completely, and you'll have enough Quirrell points to win the Christmas wish. Professor Quirrell had announced that the final battle would operate on a formal scoring system, which he'd been asked to do to avoid recriminations afterward. Each time you shot someone, the general of your army got two Quirrell points. A gong would ring through the battle area. They didn't know yet where they would be fighting, though Hermione was hoping for the forest again, where Sunshine did well. And its pitch would tell which army had won the points. And if anyone was faking being hit, the gong would ring out anyway, and then a double gong would ring later, after no fixed time, to hail the retraction. And if you called the name of an army, cried, FOR SUNSHINE! Or, FOR CHAOS! Or, FOR DRAGON! It switched your allegiance to that army. Even Hermione had been able to see the flaw in that set of rules. But Professor Quirrell had gone on to announce that if you'd been originally assigned to Sunshine, nobody could shoot you in the name of Sunshine. Or rather, they could, 
But then Sunshine lost a single quarrel point, symbolized by a triple gong. That prevented you from shooting your own soldiers for points, and discouraged suiciding before the enemy got you, but you could still shoot spies if you had to. Right now, Hermione had 244 quarrel points, and Malfoy had 219, and Harry had 221. There were 24 soldiers in each army. So we fight carefully, and just try to not lose too badly. No, said Zabini. The young Slytherin's face was now serious. The problem is, Malfoy and Potter both know that their only way to win is to combine and crush us, then fight it out on their own. So here is what I think we should do. Hermione left the classroom in something of a daze. Zabini's plan hadn't been the obvious one. It had been strange and complicated and layered and the sort of thing she would have expected Harry to come up with, not Zabini. It felt wrong just for her to be able to understand a plan like that. Young girls shouldn't be able to understand plans like that. The hat would have sorted her into Slytherin if it seemed that she could understand plans like that. The awesome thing was how fast he'd been able to escalate the chaos once he started doing it deliberately. Harry sat in his office. He'd been given the authority to order furniture from the house elves, so he'd ordered a throne, and curtains in a black and crimson pattern. Scarlet light like blood, mixed with shadow, poured over the floor. Something in Harry felt like he'd finally come home. Before him stood the four lieutenants of chaos, his most trusted minions, one of whom was a traitor. This, this was what life should be like. We are gathered, said Harry. Let chaos reign, chorused his four lieutenants. My hovercraft is full of eels, said Harry. I will not buy this record, it is scratched, chorused his four lieutenants. All Mimsy were the borough groves, and the Mumraths outgrabe. That concluded the formalities. How goes the confusion? Harry said in a dry whisper like Emperor Palpatine. It goes well, General Chaos, said Neville in tones he always used for military matters, a tone so deep that the boy often had to stop and cough. The chaotic lieutenant was neatly dressed in his black school robes, trimmed in the yellow of Hufflepuff House, and his hair was parted and combed in the usual look for an earnest young boy. Harry had liked the incongruity better than any of the cloaks they tried. Our legionnaires have begun five new plots since yesterday evening. Harry smiled evilly. Do any of them have a chance of working? I don't think so. Here's the report. Excellent, said Harry, and laughed chillingly as he took the parchment from Neville's hand, trying his best to make it sound like he was choking on dust. That brought the total to sixty. Let Draco try to handle that. Let him try. And as for Blazabini, Harry laughed again, and this time it didn't even take an effort to sound evil. He really needed to borrow someone's pet nasal for his staff meetings, so he'd have a cat to stroke while he did this. Can the Legion stop making plots now? Said Finnegan of Chaos. I mean, don't we have enough already? No, Harry said flatly. We can never have enough plots. Professor Quirrell had put it perfectly. They were pushing the boundaries further, perhaps, than they had ever been pushed. And Harry wouldn't have been able to live with himself if he turned back now. There came a knock at the door. That will be the Dragon General, Harry said, smiling with evil prescience. 
He arrives precisely as I expected. Do show him in, and yourselves out. And the four lieutenants of chaos shuffled out, casting dark looks at Draco as the enemy general entered into Harry's secret lair. If he wasn't allowed to do this when he was older, Harry was just going to stay eleven forever. The sun was dripping through the red curtains, sending rays of blood dancing across the floor from behind Harry Potter's grown-up-sized cushioned chair, which he had covered in gold and silver glitter and insisted on referring to as his throne. Draco was beginning to feel a lot more confident that he'd done the right thing in deciding to overthrow Harry Potter before he could take over the world. Draco couldn't even imagine what it would be like to live under his rule. Good evening, Dragon General said Harry Potter in a chill whisper. You have arrived just as I expected. This was not surprising, considering that Draco and Harry had agreed on the meeting time in advance. And it also wasn't evening, but by now, Draco knew better than to say anything. General Potter, Draco said with as much dignity as he could manage. You know that our two armies have to work together for either of us to win Professor Quirrell's wish, right? Yes, hissed Harry like the boy thought he was a parcel mouth. We must cooperate to destroy Sunshine, and only then fight it out between us. But if one of us betrays the other earlier on, that one could gain an advantage in the later fight. And the Sunshine General, who knows all this, will try to trick each of us into thinking the other has betrayed them. And you and I, who know that, will be tempted to betray the other and pretend that it is Granger's trickery. And Granger knows that as well. Draco nodded. That much was obvious. And both of us only want to win, and there's no one else who'll punish either of us if we defect. Precisely, said Harry Potter, his face now turning serious. We are faced with a true prisoner's dilemma. The prisoner's dilemma, according to Harry's teachings, ran thus. Two prisoners had been locked in separate cells. There was evidence against each prisoner, but only minor evidence, enough for a prison sentence of two years apiece. Each prisoner could opt to defect, betray the other, testifying against them in court. This would take one year off their own prison sentence, but add two years to the others. Or a prisoner could cooperate, staying silent. So if both prisoners defected, each testifying against the other, they would serve three years apiece. If both cooperated or stayed silent, they would serve two years each. But if one defected and the other cooperated, the defector would serve a single year and the cooperator would serve four and both prisoners had to make their decision without knowing the other one's choice, and neither would be given a chance to change their decision afterward. Draco had observed that if the two prisoners had been Death Eaters during the Wizarding War, the Dark Lord would have killed any traitors. Harry had nodded and said that was one way to resolve the prisoner's dilemma, and in fact, both Death Eaters would want there to be a Dark Lord for exactly that reason. Draco had asked Harry to stop and let him think about this for a while before they continued. It had explained a lot about why Father and his friends had agreed to serve under a Dark Lord who often wasn't nice to them. In fact, Harry had said, this was pretty much the reason why people had governments. 
You might be better off if you stole from someone else, just like each prisoner would be individually better off if they defected in the prisoner's dilemma. But if everyone thought like that, the country would fall into chaos and everyone would be worse off. Like what would happen if both prisoners defected. So people let themselves be ruled by governments, just like the Death Eaters had let themselves be ruled by the Dark Lord. Draco had asked Harry to stop again. Draco had always taken for granted that ambitious wizards put themselves in power because they wanted to rule. And people let themselves be ruled because they were scared little Hufflepuffs. And this, on reflection, still seemed true. But Harry's perspective was fascinating, even if it was wrong. But, Harry had continued afterward, the fear of a third party punishing you was not the only possible reason to cooperate in the prisoner's dilemma. Suppose, Harry had said, you were playing the game against a magically produced identical copy of yourself. Draco had said that if there were two Dracos, of course neither Draco would want anything bad to happen to the other one. Not to mention that no Malfoy would let himself become known as a traitor. Harry had nodded again and said that this was yet another solution to the prisoner's dilemma. People might cooperate because they cared about each other, or because they had senses of honor, or because they wanted to preserve their reputation. Indeed, Harry had said, it was rather difficult to construct a true prisoner's dilemma. In real life, people usually cared about the other person, or their honor, or their reputation, or Dark Lord's punishment, or something besides the prison sentences. But suppose the copy had been of someone completely selfish. Pansy Parkinson had been the example they'd used. So each pansy only cared about what happened to her and not to the other pansy. Given that this was all pansy cared about, and that there was no Dark Lord, and pansy wasn't worried about her reputation, and pansy either had no sense of honor or didn't consider herself obligated to the other prisoner, then would the rational thing be for pansy to cooperate or to defect? Some people, Harry had said, claimed that the rational thing to do was for Pansy to defect against her copy. But Harry, plus someone named Douglas Hofstadter, thought these people were wrong. Because, Harry had said, if Pansy defected, not at random, but for what seemed to her like rational reasons, then the other Pansy would think exactly the same way. Two identical copies wouldn't decide different things. So Pansy had to choose between a world in which both Pansies cooperated or a world in which both pansies defected, and she was better off if both copies cooperated. And if Harry had thought rational people did defect in the prisoner's dilemma, then he wouldn't have done anything to spread that kind of rationality, because a country or a conspiracy full of rational people would dissolve into chaos. You would tell your enemies about rationality. Which had all sounded reasonable at the time, but now the thought was occurring to Draco that... You said that the rational solution to the prisoner's dilemma is to cooperate. But of course you would want me to believe that, wouldn't you? And if Draco was fooled into cooperating, Harry would just say, Ha ha! Betrayed you again! And laugh at him about it afterward. I wouldn't fake your lessons, Harry said seriously. But I have to remind you, Draco, that I didn't say you should just automatically cooperate. Not on a true prisoner's dilemma like this one. What I said was that when you choose, you shouldn't think like you're choosing for just yourself or like you're choosing for everyone. You should think like you're choosing for all the people who are similar enough to you that they'll probably do the same thing you do for the same reasons. And also choosing the predictions made by anyone who knows you well enough to predict you accurately, so that you never have to regret being rational because of the correct predictions that other people make about you. Remind me to explain about Newcomb's problem at some point. 
So the question you and I have to ask, Draco, is this: Are we similar enough that we'll probably do the same thing, whatever it is, making our decisions in mostly the same way? Or do we know each other well enough to predict each other so that I can predict whether you'll cooperate or defect, and you can predict that I've decided to do the same thing I predict you'll do because I know that you can predict me deciding that? And Draco could not help but think that since he had to strain just to understand half of that, the answer was obviously no. Yes, said Draco. There was a pause. I see, said Harry, sounding disappointed. Ah, well, I guess we'll have to think of some other way then. Draco hadn't thought that was going to work. Draco and Harry talked about it back and forth. They had both agreed much earlier that what they did on the battlefield would not count as broken promises in real life. Though Draco was a little angry about what Harry had done in Professor Quirrell's office and said so, but if the two of them couldn't rely on honor or friendship, that did leave the question of how to get their armies to work together on beating Sunshine, despite everything Granger might try to break them up. Professor Quirrell's rules didn't make attempting to let Sunshine kill the other army's soldiers. That just increased the bar you had to pass yourself. But it did tempt each side to steal kills instead of acting like a single army would, or to shoot some of the other side's soldiers during the confusion of battle. Hermione was walking back to Ravenclaw, not really looking where she was going. Her mind preoccupied with war and treachery and other age-inappropriate concepts. When she turned a corner and bumped straight into a grown-up. Sorry, she said automatically, and then entirely without thinking. Don't worry, Miss Granger," said the cheerful smile, set beneath the twinkling eyes and above the silver beard of the headmaster of Hogwarts. "You are quite forgiven." Her gaze was helplessly locked on the kindly face of the most powerful wizard in the world, who was also the chief warlock, who was also the supreme mugwump, who had gone insane years ago from the stress of fighting the Dark Lord, and numerous other facts that were popping up into her mind one after the other. While her throat went on making little embarrassing squeaks, in fact, Miss Granger, it is quite lucky that we have bumped into each other. Why, I was just now wondering curiously what the three of you were thinking of asking for your wishes. End chapter thirty-three. Thank you to the following people: Hermione Granger, anonymous; Dumbledore, Drake Walker. Neville by Adam Hartel. Minerva McGonagall read by Autumn Rachel Dryden. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is "Catch That Goblin" by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for Chapter Thirty-Three: Coordination Problems, Part Two. <laughs>